He is indeed worthy, amen? Amen. If only we could get the world to realize that and those in this community to realize that he is worthy. Well, before I go any further, I do want to acknowledge the mothers among us. Um, Happy Mother's Day to you. It's a a, a difficult task that you have, um, but also a very rewarding one. And at the same time, we want to remember those who desire to be mothers, but in God's providence, that has not been allowed thus far, and we want to remember those who have lost children in various ways as well. And so um, just to acknowledge the mothers, their hard work, those who are with child, <laughs> and uh, at this time. Last week, we had a day of prayer and fasting. It was a glorious time. We, so, several of us prayed earnestly for many things, the handout that we kind of gave out there. And one of those things was that abortion would be abolished. Well, abortion was not abolished in this last week, but we saw a step in that direction with the Supreme Court uh, opinion letter being uh, leaked out within 24 hours of our day of prayer and fasting. And I look at that as just the, the Lord just giving a, a, some acknowledgement that he's heard our cries. And so a day of humiliation, somber reflection, earnest prayer, should be followed up by a Lord's Day of reminding ourselves of joyful and re, uh, reverent reverence, praise to God. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 34. The title of the message is From Brokenhearted to Reverent and Joyful Praise. And so we'll be looking at this, expounding Psalm 34 in its uh, entirety, the Lord willing. Have you ever tasted a particular food, maybe... Uh, oh, I know we tasted some stuff when we were in Germany through those Christmas uh, markets, and there's all these unique foods, or maybe you've tasted something when you've traveled somewhere, and you're trying to describe it to your friend, and, and you're, you're, you're grasping for adjectives, and then comparative forms. Well, it was, it was as sweet as this, and, and, and eventually you finally just find yourself, look, there's no way that I can convince you of what it tastes like. You have to taste it for yourself. Right? And there's some foods that are, that are like that. That's uh, probably one of the motives of the Costco food samples there. If they can get that food into your mouth, you're more than likely to put it into your cart, right? If, it, if it's tasteful. Well, the psalmist in our text today in verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When the psalmist says that, he's not talking about some, some uh, Palestine treat that he enjoyed, like some type of food, but rather an experience, something that, that he experienced, uh, something that is far better, a life experience. So taste and see, oh, come and experience for yourself that the Lord is good. In Psalm 40 and verse 3, he says, He has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear. Um, Arthur Pink said, Praising and adoring God is the noblest part of the saint's work on earth, as it is to be his chief employ in heaven. So in other words, when we're praising, we're adoring God, and we're asking, is he worthy? And when we're coming together in corporate worship, we're, simply, we're just simply preparing ourselves for eternity. That will be our work in eternity. 
We have much fuel to praise God, to give Him thanks, a spirit of thankfulness. I mean, look at your physical daily provisions, right? You've got a comfortable bed, you've got a roof over your your, your head, you've got your daily bread, or right? And the Lord has been faithful to bless us with all these physical blessings. And then we look at the physical creation, um, the fish of the sea, the diversity of the birds and wildlife, the uh, beautiful weather and flowers that he's put around us, the casting of the roaring waves upon the beach, even just the breeze and seeing palm tree branches blow around and various uh, birds come and doing different things. There's, there's so much to God's creation. And then you, you go out at night and you look up into the sky and you see all of those stars and galaxies and you realize there's billions of stars in each galaxy and our own galaxy is only one of not ten, not a hundred, not a thousand galaxies, but our galaxy of a few of a hundred billion stars is only one of a hundred billion galaxies. Now, who can wrap their mind around that? I mean, it's it's phenomenal. It's incredible. But then you think of this fuel to praise God that not only has he, has he put us in this one galaxy, but to realize that He's so sovereign and so profific that he's, he has all these other galaxies, but then you think of spiritual recreation, being born again. Regeneration is an incredible thing to contemplate. Our Sunday school class on the Orda Salutis is an amazing thing and gives us fuel to praise God because we see how God saves us. And even today, we'll get to hear about the doctrine of sanctification in that very class. Well, look with me in your Bibles. If you haven't turned there, turn there. In the Psalms, there's what's called a a superscription. And um, most of the Psalms, we don't know the occasion of what prompted the writer to write. You know, in most cases, David, but in many, not. But we're actually told here, look with me, a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now what that's telling us is we're getting, we're, we're getting to pull back the curtain to understand what David was going through and what he was thinking about when he penned this psalm. Uh, Daniel read for us that account in 1 Samuel 21. In his deliverance, and that was a deliverance of God, led him to rejoice. And although in the psalm itself, he does not mention any of those events, right? But he realizes that there's great fuel to praise the Lord. He does emphasize that God had heard him in his hour of trial. And you'll see as we go through this, there's nuances to this. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. There was definitely an intense trial that the psalmist was going through. And because of the superscription, I think it's safe to say it was that scene going on in 1 Samuel 21. I think as he reflected, he realized that he had not trusted the Lord to protect him as he ought to. Uh, David, I don't think, wrote this psalm immediately. It's not as though as he went to the the cave in 1 Samuel 22, 
that he pulled out a pen and wrote this psalm. I think he's had time to think about this, time to digest the events that had gone on from Jonathan and from all the events that had gone on in those chapters. And I think this came at a, a later time as he reflected on the goodness of God. Perhaps in a sense he realized he hadn't trusted God as he should. In a sense a shame came over him and he says, I want to pen something that the people of God can have great confidence to praise him no matter what. So I don't think he wrote this psalm in haste. I think there's a, a sense in which it's filled with emotion. Furthermore, one cannot write a psalm like this in an instant if it's an acrostic. Now, an acrostic is where each verse begins with the successful, successful letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so you've got the 22 letters. Now, this one is missing the very last one, but 21 of the 22 letters, each verse is carefully, methodically put in that acrostic form. Other psalms would be Psalm 25, and probably the best well-known is Psalm 119, where the, it's eight-verse chunks is in an acrostic, so all the way up to 176. All 22 Hebrew letters are there. David learns that there's no better way to elevate the bitter and discouraging experience that he suffered during that time from his memory than to commit this psalm to God for his faithfulness. Now, this psalm is um, well known. Um, we often quote the first three verses for a call to worship. It's quoted by two different New Testament authors. We read one um, where John the Apostle quotes it uh, there in John 19, but also Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 3. And we'll, we'll, we'll mention something about that in a little bit. This is also a psalm that has this phrase, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. You could just camp on that verse, can't you? The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Now many divide this psalm into uh, verses 1 to 10 and then 11 to 22. Even Spurgeon says, 1 to 10 is a hymn, and then 11 to 22 is a sermon. I'm dividing it differently into three points. They're all C's. And uh, the first is this, and I'm not going to read the entire psalm. I'm going to read each section as we go through it. And we'll be looking at the challenge to rejoice and praise God in verses 1 to 7. We'll look at the commitment to praise God in verses 8 to 14. And then the comfort of praising God in verses 15 and 22. But before we jump in, let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for this wonderful psalm. We thank you that we have the privilege to di dissect a psalm like this, even knowing something of the background. We thank you that we have the privilege to sing a wonderful psalm, Psalm 46, and even sing portions of your word from Revelation 5 of the worthiness of Christ. And so we thank you that we are a word-saturated church. And Lord, even as we look into this psalm, have your way, minister unto each and every person here. And Lord, just we want to pray especially, we are missing so many uh, from sickness and others we don't know, but Lord, we pray for those that could not be here, that they would saturate themselves with the word, that they might have something of the means of grace. 
So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the challenge to rejoice and praise God. Why do I say the challenge? Does it come naturally? It doesn't come naturally, does it? At least for me, it doesn't come naturally. We can tend to complain, um, but it's a challenge, and, and, and he lays it out here. I will bless the Lord sometimes when I'm in a good mood. I'm adding to Scripture. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were never, will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. These first three verses are just a glorious call to worship and praise the Lord. That's why we use it as a call to worship so often. And it's very similar to the psalm that had just come before. So look at Psalm 33, verses 1 to 3, and these are six commands in the original Sing for joy to the Lord, you his righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. <coughs> so similar there, the first three verses, just an invitation to praise the Lord. And when he says at all times, it's not just you know, the good times, right? Um, but it's including the times of trials. It's including when things are the hardest and roughest that we have to be those that bless the Lord. We're not blessing the Lord for the difficulty we're going through. We're blessing the Lord because we know that He's sovereign, and if there's any difficulty in our life, He has sovereignly brought it for our good and for His glory at all times, in every situation, under every circumstance, before, in, and even after trials, in the bright days of joy, and the dark nights of fear, we are to praise the Lord. Now, he says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. We boast of a lot of things, right? The Padres are doing pretty good. I can barely find time to follow it a little bit, but we can boast in our baseball team. We can boast in our football team. We can boast in lots of things. Here we're told to boast in Jehovah. And so you may boast in the Lord and just kind of leave it at that, or you can think of his person. You can think of the three persons of the Trinity. You can boast in, in his various attributes manifested to you. Like there's, in other words, there's a lot to this. A million other things we could boast in with God. And then look at 2B. The humble will hear it and rejoice. It's almost as though this, this blessing the Lord at all times and this, this making its boast in the Lord, that as we do that, it's contagious. And that those that are out here begin to see it and they join in. The humble will hear it and then they will rejoice. <coughs> Consider all that the Lord has done for you. C.S. Lewis, in his little book on the Psalms, has a chapter on <clears throat> a word about praising. 
And I just want to read you a part of this quote. A word about praising. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising their favorite countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historic personages, uh, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes a politician or a scholar. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capricious minds praise the most while the cranks and the misfits and malcontents praise the least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed their list of books we might be allowed to read. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they spontaneously urge us in praising as they are praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that was magnificent? And so telling everyone to praise God are doing all that men do. They speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is an appointed consummation. So... I think that's, I commend to you the fuller quote. I cut that down. He says in verse 3, Let us exalt, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What do you think about magnifying the Lord together? It's, you kind of want to pull out a magnifying glass and show the world and magnify him, right? And then to exalt his name together. It's one of the beautiful things we do in our church worship. We want to exalt His name. We want His name to be magnified. It's a natural consequence of our worship. There's an account of Bradford, who was one of the martyrs under Bloody Mary in the 1550s in England. Speaking of Bloody Mary, Queen Mary, whose cruel hand he ended up dying and was martyred, but he says this, If the Queen be pleased to release me, I will thank her. If she will imprison me, I will thank her. If she will burn me, I will thank her. And so says a believing soul, let God do with me what he will, I will be thankful. So what is that? A sovereign uh, resolution to trust a sovereign God, a, a, a fortified resolution to trust in the Lord. Is that your disposition today? Let God do with me whatever He will and I'll be thankful? What challenges are you facing today in which could you confidently say that? John Calvin said, Let us therefore learn from the many instances in which God may have given helps to any of His people to abound in hope. We give thanks publicly to God, not only that men may be witnesses of our gratitude, but also that they may follow our example. So we exalt in His name. We magnify His name. And then in verses 4 to 7, God hears and answers the prayers of His children. So He began with this exuberant praise to God, magnify the Lord with me. 
And then it sort of takes a step back here. And he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. So often that is a theme in the Psalms. You see the psalmist's earnest prayer of hearing him. Psalm 18 and verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and I cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of the temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. You study 1 Samuel carefully, those chapters of which I've been talking about, and, and we discover that there's the, no doubt this is a low in David's life, this season leading up to the events and the account of this psalm. Chapter 19, he had to be separated with his good friend Jonathan, of which the youth just studied uh, just recently. Um, that whole scene where he says, I'll shoot out the arrows. If I shoot them closer, I'll say, come in. Tell the servant boy as he's gathering the arrows, that means it's safe, David. If I shoot beyond, that means run for your life. My dad wants to kill you. And so there's this breaking away, this severing of a sweet, wholesome, good friendship. And then after that, King Saul had determined to kill him. And there was no bodyguard for him, no armor, no weapons. And so he's, verse 4b, he's full of fear. He delivered me out of all my fears. It, it's, it's the, all of these fears and terrors are, are not abnormal. We all have many fears that we struggle with. We all have uh, anxieties that we have about certain things that are coming up, certain things that are um, going to come up in the next couple weeks, maybe um, medical test results that are expected to come. When he escaped King Achish, the king of Kath, and hid in the cave of Adullam, uh, he was still utterly alone. He knew something of being alone, ripped apart from his best friend, and and, and just being at a low in his life. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says, This is a psalm for poor men and poor women. It is a psalm for all who are alone or destitute. For you, if you have nothing at all, or are not even sure that you will live long. It is for people who find themselves at the absolute low point of their life, which is where David was, or find themselves between which is in the case of King Saul, and a hard place, which is in the place of King Achish. It is for you when everything seems to be against you. So this is a psalm for all of us, right? We all encounter these various things. Charles Spurgeon said on this, and he delivered me out of all these fears. God makes perfect work of it. He clears away both our fears and the causes of them, and all of them without exception. Glory be to his name. Prayer sweeps the field, it slays the enemies, and it even buries their bones. So it's not just giving you grace to endure that anxiety, it's it's the promises he will deliver you out of them all. Now, there's nothing huge that changed in David's life. It's not as though he was suddenly just put into a palace, you know, being fanned in the heat of the day or anything, but he's still in a state of dread and danger. He says, they looked to him 
and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. The promise of God hearing our prayer does not mean that he will change everything that's going on in our life, but he will cause us to persevere in the midst of that trial. How have you fared in the spiritual battle of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, and fighting difficult circumstances that are in your life? If you find yourself hiding and scared in various situations that come your way, do not think yourself to be outside of Christ or as though some strange thing were happening to you. David was running from the tip of Saul's spear. Have you ever felt like spears were aimed at you as you're going through the Christian life? Maybe enemies from without and doubts from within. John Calvin again, he did not look upon his dangers with a calm and untroubled mind as if he viewed them from a distance or some elevated position, but being grievously tormented with innumerable cares he might justly speak of his fears and terrors. He speaks of this poor man. He cried, and the Lord heard him. He was indeed poor, utterly friendless in his life at this point. His life was in actual jeopardy, but he cried in his heart to the protector of his people, and he found relief because the Lord heard him. Jesus himself said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. So David saw the face of Echish, and he dismissed him as insane, which was sort of half scorn and half bewildered, but it allowed him to be able to escape. And then he tells us this, verse 7, familiar verse, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and rescues them. Now many times you see the phrase angel of the Lord, it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ himself throughout the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament appearance Christ, but not entirely, right? We know that there's many, many, many angels. And the Lord Jesus Christ rules these myriad of angels, and they surround the elect in particular, Hebrews 1.14, we learn, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will uh, inherit salvation? Psalm 91, another reference to angels. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all of his ways. Now, do you remember somebody that took that verse out of context? Matthew 4, right? And the temptation of our Lord. Oh, what do you mean you won't throw yourself down? Hasn't his promise been that he will have his angels to protect you? Um, Actually, our devotional this morning uh, in our prayer meeting, Acts uh, 12 and verse 1, an angel came to let Peter out of prison and so that he could be released. Um, Spurgeon says, we cannot see the angels, but it is enough to know that they see us, right? So we shouldn't doubt their existence because we don't see them, but it's enough that they can see us. And this familiar passage, in fact, I'm going to ask you to just turn back to it, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, it's the story of Elisha and King Aram, 
and his seeking to kill him. And he sought to to capture Elisha. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but in verse 15, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were circling the city. And his servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? So he knows that they're the target of the king trying to execute them. Verse 16, so he answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountains. The mountain was filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they had come down, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of the Lord. But there you have this idea of Elisha just has this incredible confidence that God will deliver. And his servants in great fear looking at at what's happening with all the war machine, as it were, coming against them. And Elisha prays and he sees. (coughs) So that's the challenge, verses 1 to 7. Let's move now to the commitment to rejoice and praise. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The taste of test. David had experienced the goodness of God, the deliverance of God, and he wanted others to taste this very thing. You can only know this by personal experience. That's why newer Christians sometimes can't really understand this apart from their own conversion. Oh, taste and see that God is good. And surely we see this supremely in Christ. Surely it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we see that that more than just creation, but the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his work. Peter quotes this verse, uh, or sorry, alludes to this verse in 1 Peter 2 3, says, alluding to to this verse, clearly applies it. Christ, if you have tasted that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed gracious. And so it's an illusion, that would be Peter's second illusion to this exact psalm. The greatness of God depends on a response. The greatness of God and his work and his deliverance demands a response. Taste and see that the Lord is good. One of the Puritans, Richard Eileen, says, Our senses help our understandings. We cannot, by the most rational discourse, perceive what the sweetness of honey is. Taste it, and you shall perceive it for yourself. So, obviously, you see the illusion there. I can describe honey to you all day long, but until you've tasted it, right? And so, too, with the experience, taste and see the Lord is good. Throw all of your confidence, all of your trust in the Lord, and by experience, know that He is good. And then, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in any want of any good thing. So, the fear of the Lord there. And then this uh, 
this informal instruction, verses 11 to 14, is kind of the next section um, in verse uh, 11. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What does that remind you of? Wisdom literature, right? There's so much to be taught through wisdom literature. And children are the most hopeful to be taught. They're young, they're impressionable, and, and they can be molded early on. That's why it's so important to train your children early on. And what a blessing it is. Proverbs 10.1 A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. So the second half of the psalm is, is the greatness of the biblical parallels of wisdom material that is very similar to the book of Proverbs. And he lays that out. Verse 14 says, um, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Well, we've learned about the God of peace, right? And the benediction from Hebrews 13. Peace is such a wonderful thing. It's a... it's. The opposite of conflict, right? And anytime there's conflict, there's something going on, we're on edge, we're agitated. It's like nails on a chalkboard, but peace is like soothing to our soul. So we must keep short accounts with one another. If you are given to bitterness and anger, to quickly confess that. I met so much that are in turmoil because they're holding grudges from from several years in the past. So far as it depends upon you, Paul says in Romans, be at peace with all men. Ken Sandy, the author of the Peacemaker book, which we wholeheartedly commend to you, says there's three dimensions of peace that God offers to us through Christ. Peace with God, peace with each other, and peace in ourselves. So those three naturally go together. So we've seen the challenge to rejoice and praise God, the commitment, and now let's look at the comfort, verses 15 to 22. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of the Out of all their troubles, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Verse 15, this is our only hope, that the eyes of the Lord are towards us. His ears are open. Eyes and ears are open towards the righteous. Not righteous as far as righteous law-keeping, right? Trying to keep God's law and making yourself uh, righteous in your own eyes. It's not those who have made the cut, as it were, or those that have performed enough good works earning salvation. No, away with all of that. It is those who are the children of God who have received the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. Those who have been made righteous by Christ. His ears are open to their cry. What confidence we have to know that He always hears us. That's been a big takeaway from Hebrews, right? We have a great high priest. We can come to the throne of grace at at any given time, and he hears us. So this last section of the psalm is is really four short stanzas in verses 15 to 22. These verses include, there's contrast that haven't been mentioned yet. 
but contrast between the righteous and those who turn to the Lord versus those who are in opposition to the Lord who do evil before him. We are told that the eyes and ears of the Lord are toward the righteous and he sees their distress, but the face of the Lord is against evildoers. Verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of them all. We are to cry, and God is the one that hears. Reminds me of Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. There's that invitation, as it were, to come to Him. Verse 16, the face of the Lord, we've already mentioned it here, um, is against evildoers. And it's, it's a solemn thing indeed. Uh, those who willingly perform acts clearly forbidden in the Word of God. The Lord's face is against you. Those who continue to indulge in looking at pornographic images. Those who continue to indulge in an adulterous affair. Those that continue to live with a proud arrogance before God. A living in lies and in deception. And all of these types of things. The Lord's face is against you. And then verse 16b, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now that's Old Testament language for being a castaway, basically, right? If you cut off the memory of something, it's 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 a terrible thing to be utterly removed. Now providentially, this is what Peter Peter quotes verses 14 to 17. And 1 Peter chapter 3, where he had just talked about that marriage, verses 1 to 7, and peaceful living, and then he includes this very section here, there. Well, he hears our cry, and you think of 1 Samuel 20 again, that Jonathan and David scene. Um, David is, a, is away, Saul is angry, and he hurls a spear. Uh, David is on the run. He goes there to Nob, as we heard, he eats the bread, the showbread that is there. He's given Goliath's sword, and, and, and then he goes to Gath, Philistine country of all things, where Goliath was actually from, and the servants of Achish, the king of Gath, said as he began to act all, all out of his mind and insane and drooling and scribbling, like he puts on this act, and basically the servants say, this is not David. And then he says, don't I have enough madmen? Why are you bringing him to me? In other words, God delivered him out of his being wise and putting on this act. And so he was delivered even in the midst of drooling and allowing the saliva to go down his beard. And so he fled. He was delivered in that situation. Well, verse 18 to 20, the Lord is near the brokenhearted, it says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he delivers them out of them all. So it's almost as though as he's going through this call to praise, verses 1 to 3, the real nitty gritty of calling upon the Lord and having him answer me, poor man, and all of that, verses 4 to 7. Then the exhortation to taste and see, and then he comes back here, and, he's, and he, he wants to remind us as he's nearing the end of the psalm, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Though I've given you much reasons to praise and an admonition to taste and see that the Lord is good, 
don't think all your troubles are going to go away. That's not the way he has purposed things. Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of heaven, Paul has said. Even the psalmist in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So it's always when we're nearing the end or coming out of a trial, then we can see the good, but in the midst of it, it's not always so easy, right? When we're going through it. Now we all know what it's like to be broken hearted. The Lord is near to the broken hearted. We all know that. The Christian life, we are often crushed. Friends tend to flee from us, from you when you're crushed and broken hearted. But the reality is it's not that God has gone far away. In fact, when we're broken hearted, God is nearer than ever before. In these types of seasons, He is near and ready. Psalm 145.18 The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. We need to realize that when we're broken hearted, that's the time when we want to despair. That's the time when we want to doubt. Where are you, God? Are you here? Do you see what I'm going through? And that's the very time that He is nearest to us. And He saves all those who are crushed in spirit. I've heard it illustrated like this. A good surgeon that performs a complex surgery on someone after the surgery will remain near the the patient's room to check in on him to make sure that he's okay. How much more the great physician of our souls when he knows we've been wounded and broken is very near to us and is very concerned. In fact, God the Father was so determined to be near to us that He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into a sin-cursed earth. Right? Full of sin. The incarnation that He was born as the, the sinless One amongst the sinful, wicked people. That He would live that perfect life and never sin and be crucified for us. He enters our misery, our poverty, our brokenness, our weakness, so that He could be a great and merciful high priest to each of us. So that He can draw near in our brokenness. That He can say experientially that He's been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. This is one who I want to be near me when I'm going through these types of things. He himself knows what it's like to be crushed in spirit. He's suffered the agony on the cross. And as we read in John chapter 19, it was the custom of the Romans to break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross. If they, weren't, if they were still had some life, that then they couldn't hold themselves up anymore and they would suffocate. So this verse is quoted in verse 20, but he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Isn't that a beautiful, prophetic fulfillment there? He keeps all of his bones. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Of course, then he rises from the grave, a glorious resurrection, and he is our great high priest. And then in verses, the last two verses, we see uh, the fate of the wicked. 
evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge into him will be condemned. And so ends this beautiful psalm. So as we think of the challenge to rejoice and praise the Lord, if we're tempted to complain, tempted to grumble, no, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The, the commitment to do this, taste and see that the Lord is good, and then the comfort, the Lord is near, the brokenhearted. So praise God for the access that we have to Him as we wrap up. Uh, cry out to Him in prayer during these times. We so often need a balanced view of how we live in the wickedness of this world, and we need a balanced view to know God is sovereign. He's in control of all things, but we see all of this going on, and to have a confidence that He's got this. He understands. We're to be called to be faithful to Him. Thomas Watson said, Though nothing can add to God's essential glory, yet praise exalts Him in the eyes of others. Right? We can't add to His essential glory, but as, as people see us praising Him and giving Him glory, that lifts Him up in the eyes of others and should be convicting to them. Secondly, know for certain that our great God will deliver us. Now that deliverance looks differently each and every time, right? Um, several are going through difficult trials even now. Maybe you feel broken and crushed. It's a common experience in this life. But when we cry out, we can be assured that God hears us and that He's near the brokenhearted. Even King David, who is noted for his bravery and was greatly disquieted and smitten with fear, said, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me out of all my fears. What a glorious hope. We are called to rejoice. Isaac Watts in one of his hymns, says, I'll praise my Maker while I have breath, and when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. My praise, my days of praise shall never be passed. And then remember when friends and family and co-workers and all forsake you, that the Lord will never forsake you. We sing... Um, a hymn, uh, it's number 95 in the Trinity, Though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes unite, yet one thing secures us, and whatever betide, the promise assures us the Lord will provide. And if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, know very clearly that the face of the Lord is against evildoers. You are His enemy you can only be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. Not just death in this life, but an eternal death away from the presence of God. But the free gift of God is salvation in Christ. But you must trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this challenge that we have heard. May we be those that are ever praising You for Your goodness. We pray your blessing upon the rest of the service. Amen.